All right. So. Here we are in the disco. Uh, every, every year I give hundreds of talks, and uh, without fail, year in and year out, the talk I'm always the most disappointed with. And I try not to be too hard on myself, but the one I'm always invariably disappointed with is uh, the talk on the refuges and the precepts. In other words, the talk about what we do on New Year's Eve and the reason that we sit here in silence while everybody else is partying. Um, I've sort of come spiritually 180 degrees in my life. I used to spend New Year's Eve fretting that there was always a better party going on Elsewhere, and now I fret that somewhere else in the world, someone is giving a better Dharma talk than I. (laughs) (laughs) That's the evolution and transformation in a nutshell. (laughs) So uh, this time I decided I was going to try to do something that I've never actually uh, uh, tried to do, which is I decided to write out. so that I wouldn't uh, leave metaphorically slapping my forehead, wishing that I had mentioned something. I've never really attempted to read from anything I've written. I always give my talks entirely extemporaneously with a few notes, just as supports. So I might abandon this midway through. We'll see. So here we go. It is both human nature and culturally instilled behavior to seek our lasting security, our happiness, and transcendent meaning for life in what the Buddha called the Lokadhamma, which is the world and all its fleeting conditions. This is Buddhist lingo for the roller coaster ride that is life. The sexy pleasures followed by gastric discomforts. <laughs> I didn't laugh when I wrote that. But <laughs> In a mood. <laughs> At the time, it seemed like serious business. <laughs> uh, the uh, financial gains followed by losses, approval one day, criticism the next, our 15 minutes of fame giving way to insignificance. Just as the youth of today may respond with blank expressions when the clash is mentioned, and this did in fact happen to me recently, (laughs) so too will Miley Cyrus. (laughs) I was determined to get her in. So too will Miley Cyrus' ascendants prove ephemeral. (laughs) What riderly. Gabosh. All right. In hunting down and latching onto what feels good, we inevitably experience the disappointments, 
that arises when day gives way to night or faster still when we become accustomed to and bored with our shiny new iPads. As they put it in bad country songs, we're often looking for love in all the wrong places. The Buddha explained that the run-of-the-mill materialist pursuit of happiness turns quickly from habit to addiction as we chase new satisfactions to replace the old comforts that are slipping away. In other words, we need more approval, more fame, more wealth, and more pleasure. This more is better mindset is enshrined by the vast information vehicles of capitalism. I can't give that enough uh, weightiness. Including its educational and cultural institutions. And these views resonate neatly with the human mind's innate reward circuitry. You knew I was going to get the neuroscience in there, right? Okay. Our default setting is to reward ourselves with a jolt of dopamine when something gives us even a moment's feeling of power, advantage, or control, even despite the inevitable downsides. It might sound harsh, but the, va- the fast-forward version of material happiness is revealed by those before and after photographs of meth addicts who throw away vitality for an artificial high. Until we liberate ourselves, we are all essentially addicts of one sort or another. While some of us are enslaved to what's culturally permissible, 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 such as shopping, gambling, work, sex, food, even the hollow approval that narcissists need for their self-fixation. No matter what drug we choose, life is still slipping by, and few of the comforts in the world supply us with any lasting satisfaction. As the rewards accrued from working and spending become increasingly hollow, a fear arises. Holy shit! I'm still not happy. I must be missing out on something. This leaves us even more exposed and susceptible to manipulation. We may even buy into the barrage of messages insinuating you are what you have. And the delusion that somewhere out there in those glassy modernist towers, people live without ever experiencing aging or illness, completely free of sadness, depression, or frustration. If we could only find the perfect job to buy a roomy condo in one of those buildings with spectacular river views, closets closets wedged with fabulous clothes, our dinner parties would attract all the right people. And then our sophisticated friends would laugh at our jokes and never tire of offering us their admiration. We'd finally be inoculated from pain and everything would turn out just swell. And so happiness is always somewhere down the line. And this very moment is incapable of providing us with anything worthwhile. If we can just get through this moment, then the next moment, surely some moment, sometime, will be suitable where we can really relax and enjoy life. 
It's akin to a highway where signs tell us that a rest stop is always a little further down the road. We can only stop when we finally run out of gas. Craving for more keeps the economy buzzing as it chews up our resources and turns us into competitors. Mistrusting, viewing each other as obstacles, fighting over slices of an ever-dwindling cake. The result of trying to consume happiness via Amazon is the demise of few of a few other small things, such as egalitarianism, freedom of thought, and social purpose. In the course of a couple of decades, we've moved from connecting with each other by hanging out on stoops and in parks, shooting the breeze, to posting selfies on Facebook and snarky comments on Twitter. As they say, the silence we receive for these efforts is deafening. Meanwhile, renowned philanthropists assure us that the world's continuing pesky problems, such as starvation and genocidal conflicts, can be easily solved by the distribution of laptops and smartphones. The Buddha compared such a life to fish flapping about in a shrinking puddle of water. One doesn't need to be a psychologist to know that constant busyness is a symptom of avoidance. For when we run out of fuel and idle to a full stop, what is it that we experience? Very often it's a sadness and the voidness of meaning that is simply surviving in the world. But if we're lucky, eventually we may stumble upon a powerful, if devastating, insight. Having more only leaves us wanting more. The karma of craving is a thirst that can never be quenched. As the Buddha noted, the world is not enough to satisfy our craving. This is known as samsara, the day-after-day hustle on the treadmill of I must make more to get more existence. If we become alienated from consumerism, we might try to locate alternative sources of happiness and other false refuges. For example, the flood of information provided by the Internet, the capability to Wikipedia this or that, fosters a belief that knowledge alone offers us the higher meaning we seek. But filling the mind with information is essentially a prettified version of seeking security by lining our pockets or filling up our rooms with flat screens. No matter how many books we read about Buddhism, for example, we'll never know true peace. It's like claiming to know what it is to swim from descriptions and diagrams. Knowing what causes fear doesn't make us any less afraid. Understanding why we behave in one way or another doesn't calm the mind or liberate the heart. Another existential dead end is the hope that lasting satisfaction can be found in filling our days with an endless array of exciting thrills and experiences. Many want to believe that in hiking the Himalayas, traversing the Andes, or spelunking Mexico... (laughs) It's a word that you write, but you never actually say aloud. (laughs) 
traversing the Andes or spelunking Mexico's caves of crystals. I Wikipedia that. I had no idea they existed. <laughs> Taking ayahuasca and Peruvian sweat lodges will keep emptiness at bay and reveal life's true meaning, expunging our deep-rooted dissatisfaction. While new experiences have their place and they provide as much they provide as much lasting inner peace as impulsive sex with multiple partners provides true intimacy. Thrills are a lot of fun. They add spice to life. But we're in for a letdown if this is where we're hoping that serenity is hiding. So some may answer that all the above is found by believing in God. And for many, it is the case. However, for the rest of us who, in the dark hours of insomnia or confusion or despair, have found our earnest prayers for direction unanswered, we are fortunate that the Buddha's awakening provided us with another path, one that provides three sources of refuge, each of which can liberate the heart and fill our lives with purpose. These refuges answer the questions we've been asking over the course of lifetimes. What can I really rely on unconditionally? What can always provide me with comfort and direction in any situation, even now? What can never abandon me? And before we answer too quickly, note that refuge is not subject to change, nor does it ever desert us during times of affliction. The key to these refuges lie in understanding one simple but profound truth. What really matters in life is how we react to situations and circumstances rather than the situations and circumstances in and of themselves. I'll say that again, kind of important. What really matters in life is how we react to situations and circumstances rather than the, situ the situations and circumstances in and of themselves. As neuroscientists explain, neurons that fire together wire together. How we use our brain shapes and molds the brains that we'll inherit in the future. Our present attitudes produce our future perspectives. So we can travel to the most peaceful locations the world has to offer. We can spend our lives pampered in a spa. But it doesn't mean that we'll be serene in years to follow. However, if we learn to respond to fear and ignorance with calmness and creativity, we will indeed be graced with a comfortable and unflappable psyche. And what could be more worthwhile? So let's explore these refuges. As we abandon our shopping carts and gain a little distance from the bargain hunters, we are invited by the Buddha to contemplate being in and of itself. This means becoming aware of what we are left with when we drop the belief that true peace isn't available to us right here and right now we're asked to finally put to test the delusion that we're missing something important or that there's something wrong with us that we need to fix. In cultivating a receptive, curious mindfulness, 
we release our fixation from the regime of improvements in favor of opening those vast to those vast wonders that are available to us within. Being alive is an amazing experience, filled with interwoven processes of breathing and body movements that are all too easy to overlook. In meditation, we lie down not to sleep, nor do we walk to get anywhere. We lie down, sit, stand, or walk simply to experience, experience those states for the depth, beauty, and wisdom that they contain. Having a brain gives us more processing power than all the world's computers combined. As the Buddha noted, we develop capabilities more astonishing than traveling the universe when we explore our inner resources. In this journey, we awaken to the intrinsic marvels of life itself. Breathing in and of itself is astonishing if we observe it with enough persistence. Under close inspection, each inhalation and exhalation are unique and different from those which came before or will come possibly after. It's as revolutionary as the insights of Marx, Freud, or Darwin. Taking a break from mundane narratives and dramas, we open to the unavoidable experiences of life. Yes, we will have the pains and losses felt by all beings, but we can actually enjoy the ceaseless parade of perceptions, feelings, thoughts, and moods that pass through the mind as we learn to rest in our seat of non-reactive awareness. In opening to this wonder, we find refuge in the Buddha, whose name means nothing other than the state of being awake. Two taking refuge in the Dharma. In the search for that which doesn't abandon us, we note that certain skills in life never go away. Neurally ingrained in the innermost mechanisms of the brain, the learned competence to swim, draw, play an instrument, invariably remain intact, despite the passage of time. Implicit memories and behaviors require little cognitive oversight and they can be universally learned independent of our personal history, abilities or lack thereof, despite numerous disadvantages or traumatic experiences. Through patient, <laughs> through patient repetition, we encode in our pathways the ability to pause rather than react defensively, to risk intimacy rather than avoiding the unknown to know that all conditions will eventually pass, to examine our own thoughts and behaviors when we hope to identify the cause of our suffering. It has been written that it takes thousands of hours to practice, of practice to complete the transition from awkward dabbling to consummate expertise. As someone who's been meditating for 30 years, I believe it takes longer. At least it does in my case. 
And spiritual progress does not always grow easier, for there are times when depression, fear, or uncertainty may feel overwhelming. Losses of all kinds will test our conviction, yet we continue the practice and wisdom of letting go of distractions, developing healthy doubt about all those inner autobiographies, and trusting instead on the simple wisdom of karma. As the Buddha explained about awakening, ignorance will be destroyed, and all that is true revealed to one who is aware and persistent in their practice. Three, refuge in the Sangha. It should be noted that true refuge doesn't come entirely from inner resources, for meaningful, secure, empathic connection to others is an absolute requisite for developing any regulation of our emotions or respite from our feelings of uniqueness and separation. In the reassuring glance of another spiritual practitioner, received as we disclose our most challenging urges and emotional states, we locate a bond and care that heals even the deepest wounds inflicted in previous times of shame, abandonment, and rejection. As the Buddha taught, I do not see any quality by which the skillful rises and the unskillful subsides than friendship with admirable people. From our teachers, we learn what is beautiful in the beginning, the middle, and the end. Surpassingly pure, the Buddha taught. The spiritual life is one of mutual dependence, for together we cross over the flood of ignorance. And by this he means the craving and influences that push us in the wrong direction. Connecting with others is the most challenging of the refuges for it requires a risk even greater than sitting and observing the inner horror shows and ludicrous fantasies that our mind can project. In opening our hearts to others, we risk once again being deserted and shunned, that which we fear the most. But there's really no alternative. Openness and honesty are the foundations of trust and so resilience even if it's born of desperation and loneliness, it is worthwhile. We can develop this skill incrementally, taking slow, calculated risks, but take the plunge. It's worth it. Finally, a note on the precepts. In entering this spiritual journey, it is not enough to commit ourselves to the destination. We have to seal the deal, as it were, by renouncing the actions that sabotage our pilgrimage, loading us down with the heavy baggage of guilt, shame, and unworthiness. To use the analogy of climbing a mountain to attain a beautiful vantage, the trails are often difficult and require relinquishing that which slows us down. Some trails may even lead us in the wrong direction. So the refuges do not appear merely by belief as in other spiritual faiths, but 
only result from actively letting go of that which derails and detracts. In leading peaceful, ethical lives, the relationships necessary to sustain harmony with others and gain strength from our peers would only be scarred by aggression, addiction, or careless impulses. And so together we undertake the most basic tenets found in the Buddha's teaching of Panchila, or the precepts. For the purposes of training, we abstain from taking life, taking what is not given, sexual misconduct, harmful speech, and heedless intoxication. It should be noted that the precepts, precepts should not be mistaken for the commandments found in theistic spiritual paths. In our spiritual transformations, we will stumble we will fall short. And while others may judge us for our mistakes, it's important to keep going and put aside self-condemnation. The process is simply one of learning from mistakes and returning again and again and again to our practice with renewed conviction. A slip of the tongue or reactive impulse does not require us to weigh down our minds with self-belittling verdicts, or justifications. We're on a journey that requires perseverance and forgiveness of ourselves and others. As the Buddha assured in the wonderful Kalama Sutta, if there's no life after this one, no rebirth, then still at the very least, by refraining from harmfulness in this life, I will live with ease, with a mind clear, of the agitation born of hostility, hostility, animosity, and free from all the trouble such actions bring. It's a wonderful promise, ease and freedom, a state more comforting than anything purchased and consumed. It is, as the saying goes, the only game in town. So... Here we go. If you... No, we can do it while I do the sabe. We all chant the sabe sato. Sabe sata sakutsuki hantu. <laughs> all right. So I'm going to start. Namo tsasa bhagavato arato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. So we've just paid homage to the enlightened Buddha. So here we go, taking the refuges. Buddham saranam gachami. Dhamman saranam gachami. Dhamman saranam gachami. Sangam saranam gachami. Sangam saranam gachami. Dutiampi buddham saranam gachami. Dutiampi saranam gachami. Close enough. Dutiampi. <laughs> 
Dutyampi Dhamman Saranam Gachami Dutyampi Sangan Saranam Gachami Dutyampi means for a second time. So guess what Tatyampi means? Tatyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Tatyampi Daman Saranam Gachami Tatyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Happy New Year, by the way. <laughs> You're not off the hook yet. For the purposes of practice, I undertake the precepts, I undertake the precepts to abstain from taking life. To abstain from taking life. For the purposes of practice, for the purposes of practice, I undertake the precept, I undertake the precepts to abstain from taking what is not freely offered. To abstain from taking what is not freely offered. For the purposes of practice, for the purposes of practice, I undertake the precept, I undertake the precepts to abstain from causing harm. To abstain from causing harm. Through sexual behavior. Through sexual behavior. Did I do freely offered yet? Yeah. I did. Okay, good. For the purposes of practice. For the purposes of practice. I undertake the precept. I undertake the precept. To abstain from false speech. To abstain from false speech. For the purposes of practice. For the purposes of practice. I undertake the precept. I undertake the precepts to abstain from heedlessness. To abstain from heedlessness. And that's the word you never get to say, right? Caused by intoxication. Caused by intoxication. And now we'll chant the Pali for may all beings be peaceful. Sabe sata suki hantu. Sabe sata suki hantu. Sabe. We have to put out the string while we do this. Sabe sata suki hantu. 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 
Save sata suki unto 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 Sabe 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 sata suki unto Beautiful So take the string you have does everybody have the string? So take the string we have and just tie a knot in it the first knot symbolizing seeking refuge an awakening within amidst the miracle of simply being alive, blessed with human minds and all the capabilities of awakening and enlightenment that they offer. And then a second knot for the wisdom that's been passed down for the last 2,500 years, shining a light and then giving us a direction to finding true peace. Wisdom that was passed down for 500 years, simply word, spoken word, recited and chanted in the forests of India and then in its journey to all different lands. The wisdom so earned through trial and perseverance by those who practiced before us. And finally, tying a knot for the Sangha. The wisdom and support the energy that seeing other people practicing and doing the hard work provides us with. So you can put it around your wrist and then we take advantage of the Sangha and all that it offers by asking help from our neighbors. And I encourage you, if there's somebody near you you don't know very well, to ask them and reach out and introduce yourself. I obviously know you.